Okay, 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 I get it. You guys are good at that. You're good, you're doing great. Okay, so um, hey, as Pastor Chris said, we are gonna have our uh, Agape Patio Fellowship back in the fellowship hall today, uh, just because it's supposed to be hot and we don't want any roasted people out there while we do. So if you've never been to the fellowship hall, it's lovely, it's air conditioned, and it's right behind us. So when we're done with service, we're all gonna head right out that door. And the elementary kids are going to show us how to do that right now as they are dismissed. So uh, preschool through fifth grade, you guys are dismissed. Middle schoolers and high schoolers, bless your hearts, you are in with us today on the first Sunday. Not only do you get to lead us in worship, but you get to stay in here for the teaching. God bless you. And as you hear the text today, I want you guys all to know I didn't plan it this way. The Holy Spirit did this, so apparently it's something that you need to hear. Uh, we have a great chapter this morning, but before we get to it, I do want to make a quick announcement. And normally I wouldn't do this, but since uh, today is the actual day, uh, 29 years ago on this day, go ahead, David. No, not that one. That happened. 29 years ago today, which simply means that that dear woman for 32 years has been putting up with what you guys put up with for an hour a week. She's been putting up with it for that long. And before we take that picture down, I have two quick things to say about it. Number one, yes, one of us is aging more graciously than the other one. She looks better and better every Day. And the other thing is that those glasses in 1993 were super on trend. I just want you guys to know that, as was the mullet I had in 1992. And I heard those, those are coming back. So anyway, we're going to be, thank you very much for that. We're going to be in the book of Colossians this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. Um, great text this morning. It's a great text every week. But if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. And one of the guys will bring one to you. And as we say all the time, if you don't have a Bible, we want you to have one. We want you to read it. Um, most importantly, we want you to get to know the author of it. So um, anyway, Col Colossians chapter 3 this morning. We're going to look at verses 5 through 14. Uh, and before we do, let's just ask the Lord uh, to really bless this time uh, as we go to his word. So Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the youth Lord, and their involvement in our service, Lord, leading us and, and uh, sharing the word with us already this morning. Lord, we pray you'd bless them for that, Father. We, uh, we thank you that you are here with us, Lord, that you inhabit the praises of your people. And Father, we pray uh, even now as we go to your word, Lord, we pray as we do each and every week that you would be our teacher, Lord, that your spirit would uh, just give us ears to hear what he would say to each one of us here this morning, Lord, and that the, the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today. Lord, and we ask you to bless this time. Bless your word, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Colossians chapter 3, and it's, you know, continuing on in this study, right, of this letter by the Apostle Paul to this little church at Colossi. And we're sort of picking up today, uh, again, it's right midway through the book, and it's really midway through this passage where we've seen Paul now really start to address head-on really the, the main issue that was central to the issue, which was at the heart of this heresy that was going on there in Colossae, right? It was called the Colossian heresy. And as we've seen, this was a false teaching that didn't really question the way that a person was saved, Right? didn't question the fact that one was saved by faith in Jesus Christ and in, in him alone. It wasn't really a question of, of their salvation, but it was, it did question then the process of our ongoing sanctification, right? That process of our growth in holiness, right? That process where we become more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world and certainly less and less like the person that we were before we placed our faith in him, 
right? Before that wonderful moment when we were regenerated by the presence of his spirit as he came to dwell in us and then really change us from the inside out. And these false teachers, you might remember, they had claimed that Jesus was fine to get you saved, but then you needed to add all of these other things onto Jesus once you were saved, now to be sanctified, right? to really grow and to mature in the, the deep things of the faith. They said you had to add in all this human philosophy. You had to add in, as we've seen, this religious legalism and this kind of mysticism and this asceticism to really deal with the old self. As if Jesus was somehow capable of saving us and then yet he had to turn us over to the wisdom of men in order to complete us or to perfect us. Of course, that just sounds foolish, which it is. Last week, we really reached what we said, and I think what we saw was the, the pinnacle, if you will, in this ascent of Paul's argument. He focused in on these real steps towards our sanctification, these real steps towards our growth in holiness and being set apart unto the Lord. And remember in verses one through four, of our text last time, you can glance at them again, but Paul really exhorted us not to live, spiritually speaking, in this world, but to really live above the world, right? To live life on a higher level, to seek earnestly after the things of heaven and set our minds intently on the things of heaven and to really let Jesus live his life through us as we simply focus on him and the, the prospect, the promise, the reality of eternity spent with him. And now, as we expected, we've come to verse 5. And now, if you, if you think about it, we're sort of beginning our descent from these heavenly things right back down to how now they, how now they, how now brown cow, they really express themselves <laughs> in our earthly lives. And what we're gonna see is that Paul gives us these three really elementary steps, very practical principles to really put all these things really into practice in our lives. Now, I was gonna call this message practicing three practical practices practically in our practical process of practical sanctification, but as you can see, it didn't fit really well on the slide. So. Instead, we're going to go with out with the old and in with the new. I know it's not nearly quite as catchy, but let's go with it for now. Again, this is where it really starts to get practical, where the, the rubber meets the road, as the saying goes. So, so buckle up, right? Strap in. We come to verse 5. Paul starts off very plainly, very practically. He says, what's the first word? Therefore. Right? So because of all of these glorious heavenly things, all of these things that are now occupying and dominating our hearts and dominating our minds, where our affections are and where our thoughts really are, having now dealt with all of those inward things, we can now start to address these practical things. Because again, remember, it's so true that we will never grow in a practical sense beyond what really has our affections and those things that we really believe to be true. And so those are the things he started with, right? In those first four kind of powerful verses. And now having laid that foundation, so now with our hearts and our minds fixed in the heavenlies, now he says in verse five, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Now, I'm going to stop right there again, right in the middle of this verse. Before we go too much further, we have to wonder, what in the world is he talking about? Right? What are these members of the earth that we're supposed to be putting to death? Right? Who is it we're supposed to be out killing? Well, in a sense, more simply, some of your Bibles may translate it. The NIV renders it, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So the very first step, right, in out with the old and in with the new is putting to death our earthly nature. That's the old man, right, the old self. Paul says we have to put to death all those desires of our old sin nature, which craves sin. And before we even get to the list of what those are, 
I need us to see really the strength of the way that Paul says this because those words put to death or maybe in some of your translations it says mortify, right? Mortify them. It has the sense in the original language of an execution, right? This is a ruthless kind of a cold-blooded murder of these things. It means that we need to show these things no mercy in our lives because they will show us absolutely no mercy if they're allowed into our lives or if they're allowed to, to remain in our lives. And what Paul's talking about here, right, what he's about to list for us, these are those types of sins of our flesh that just cause corruption and cause pollution right at the very foundation of who we are. These are things that we simply cannot mess around with. And so Paul is very practical here. He's gonna give us five clear examples of exactly and precisely these kinds of things that just simply have to be put to death, right? He doesn't want us guessing in terms of what he's talking about. So again, in verse one, he says, put to death your members which are on the earth, then he says, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So again, right here in this verse, he really hits at the heart of what was at the heart of pagan culture, both in his time and in our time still today, and that is sexual immorality. In fact, that word there, the very first word in our list, fornication, is more simply translated sometimes as sexual immorality. In the Greek, you've probably heard this before, it's the word porneia. And it's the word from which, of course, we get our word pornography. And it's a word that really encompasses the whole gamut of sexual sin. The whole gamut of sexual sin that lies outside the only expression of sex, the only expression of sexuality that's ordained by the God who created sex in the first place and of course who created us. And the only expression of that is the expression of sex between two people in a heterosexual covenantal marriage relationship. And from there, Paul then only really widens the net because porneia was a big word with a wide net, but then uncleanness was an even bigger word with an even wider net because he's talking here not about physical hygiene, of course, but really he's talking about moral hygiene because this word uncleanness more so speaks to an impurity of thought or a, a moral filthiness. It's the moral root of what expresses itself then in sexual immorality. And then of course, passion in this context refers to sexual lust. Evil desire refers to any desire for something that God has said is evil, right? Including these lusts, these thoughts, this kind of sexual immorality, which then that evil desire when it's full blown becomes the final item in this lovely list, which is covetousness. Covetousness, most simply, is just the ungodly desire for more, for something more or something other than what it is that God has provided to us. And it can be used, it's very often used, in the sense of wanting more in a material sense. But its use in this context, we believe, and I do too, that it refers to an ungodly desire specifically in the realm of a sexual relationship or of sexual activity. Especially when we think about the first way that this word is used way back in the 10th commandment where God commands you shall not covet, what? Your neighbor's wife. And so this prohibition against this kind of a covetous desire is especially applicable as it relates to this realm of sexual immorality. Because notice what Paul says next in the text. He says that this kind of covetousness, he says it's nothing less than what? Idolatry. 
right, where you have this desire for something, right, this desire for a, a, this sort of relationship or this some particular sexual expression or sexual immoral activity, and that desire then becomes more important to me than God. That desire then becomes something on which I'm willing to compromise the word of God in order to have that thing. I'm willing to compromise my relationship with God in order to partake in, in that particular relationship or to participate in this particular sort of a sexual practice. That immorality then becomes something in our life that has become more important to us than God is. And that's when it becomes idolatry. This is something that I'm worshiping rather than worshiping God. And again, we are especially vulnerable to this kind of corruption in this specific area where what it is that we want sexually or what it is that we are doing sexually, if it falls outside of the things that God has prescribed and he's allowed, and yet we just keep on doing it anyway, right? Anything from premarital sex to extramarital sex, any kind of sexual activity outside of that committed covenantal marriage relationship, right? To pornography or whatever it is, we have then made it an idol. But what our culture tells us is that we're simply just what? We're just expressing who we are as an individual. And at the risk of heading down a very deep rabbit hole, what I want us to really understand is that the world that Paul was preaching to, and the world that Paul was writing in, had a sexual ethic that was strikingly similar to the one that we have, especially in the West today. And really what's happened now in regard to sexuality in the Western world is we have gone back to a pagan sexuality. And what we're seeing in our culture today and here in the West, whether we're talking about the United States or Canada or you know, Australia, Australia, New Zealand, Europe, you know, anywhere where sort of Western civilization has touched down and has really put down deep roots, we're gonna find these very same kinds of sexual ideas and sexual agendas, and they all go back to the ancient world. This is how the ancient world lived, steeped in this kind of a deep pagan sense of morality, right, which is immorality. And it was really, it was the influence of the gospel historically in the world that changed the way people thought and that changed the way people behaved, especially in this realm regarding their sexuality. And yet now what we're seeing, of course, is as the real influence of the gospel is wearing off in Western culture, we're seeing now this resurgence of these real pagan kinds of ideas about sexuality, where people are placing it right at the center of what they are. They're using it to identify and to define who they are. And they're throwing off any kind of restraints which are placed on them to do whatever they want in these areas. And because of it, they're throwing off the very creator God who put those restraints there because he knows best. He knows how we were designed. He knows how we were built. And he knows how deeply these kinds of sins can corrupt us. And yet people are throwing off all of that restraint because of this idolatry. And so we see Paul puts this clear emphasis right here on these kinds of sins. Right? He says we're to put these kinds of sins ruthlessly to death. Now how exactly do we do that? What exactly does that look like? Well, this, this idea of putting these to death or mortifying or this cold-blooded murder, it goes well beyond just trying to avoid them, though it certainly does include that, right? Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 13, he says, we're to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts, which effectively means just don't set yourself up to sin. 
Right? Avoid those things, avoid those situations where you know you're going to be tempted by sin, any kind of sin. Right? Again, of course, if you're, if you're tempted by alcohol, don't stop at a liquor store for a candy bar. Right? If it's drugs that are your downfall, don't drive down the street where you used to buy them. Go a different way. Right? Even if the Google lady tells you you're going the wrong way, go around. She'll figure it out. She's pretty smart eventually, right? Take a different route. If it's pornography that ensnares you, there's, you know, set up an accountability, you know, use a filter, turn your monitor toward the door, right? Give your passwords, all your passwords, to your wife or give them to a friend. Set yourself up at the gym facing the wall, not facing the glass-windowed yoga room, right? Don't be alone with a member. I mean, all of these things are, these are very wise boundaries that we can establish and we should establish in very practical ways just to limit our exposure to sin, to limit the, the temptation to sin and really protect that level of holy living. But putting those things to death that still belong to our fleshly nature, it goes way beyond even that. So mortification of these sins is what we do with the sins and the temptations that get past all of those boundaries that we've set up within our lives. And when something does get through those things, Paul says, kill it off, murder it right then and there at the front door. He says, show it, no mercy. And the way that we do that, it's a combination of an immediate act of our will backed up by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in each of us as Christians. Right? We are to decisively, resolutely, instantaneously make a decision against that sin and to do so, I think, with a real sense of a righteous indignation about that sin. We can be righteously indignant about this sin that wants to come back into my life and take me back into bondage again, as if I was the same person I used to be before I became a new creation. As if I was not indwelt by God Almighty himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. So that when that temptation comes, there should be a sense of affront related to that. And then to simply say something like this, Lord, I reject this temptation because I am done with that person that I used to be. And so as an act of my will, I'm going to say no to this sin. I'm going to say no to everywhere that this sin will take me in my life. And I'm going to say yes to you. I'm going to say yes to your word. I'm going to say yes to the prompting of your spirit. I'm going to say yes right now in this moment to your plan for my life. And in doing that, we then take that powerful thing, right, called the word of God, right, the sword of the spirit, and we kill off that deed of the flesh that's trying to come against us. It's trying to draw us into those old ways or maybe into some new thing we were never even involved in, but we kill that thing off with the sword of the spirit and we kill it off with a promise that's so much better. Any one of the hundreds of promises that God gives us in his word of a better life now lived, set apart unto him. It's a decision. It begins with a very clear act of our will, but it is fully energized now by the power of God himself. And it is fundamental to our success in our sanctification. So this is the part that we play. Right? He has regenerated us. He has indwelt us. We are risen with him. The old nature was crucified there on the cross with him. But now it's time for us to make true on a practical level what is already true on a spiritual one. Right? It's now time for us to work out our own salvation with deep reverence and trembling, Paul says, for it is God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. All of that simply to say we need to work to the outside what is already true on the inside. And it does take true commitment. It takes a true desire 
to want to live differently. And yet it is such an important part of the process. Some people ask, why can't God just sanctify me completely when he saves me? Wouldn't that be easier? Except that sanctification is a part of the process that God is using really to develop depth in our faith and to prepare us for an eternity in heaven. This is how we walk by faith, by believing that what he says is true and then by simply starting to walk in that truth even when we don't feel like those things are true. I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but one author, a quote that I love, it says that learning to believe what doesn't at the moment feel true is an essential part of being a Christian. And then I would add to that, that then starting to step out and to act and to live according to that new reality, again, that's our part in this process. But we can do it in the power that he supplies. Right? As we feed that good wolf, right? The, the feeding, nurturing, strengthening the appetite that we have, not for those things of the flesh, but we're feeding that appetite for the things of the spirit. And if we weren't convinced already by our need to be serious about all this, look what Paul adds in verses six and seven. He gives us these two great motivations Right for dealing ruthlessly with these kinds of sins in our lives. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So not only are these kinds of things bad for us, but ultimately they will bring judgment upon us. We need to show this kind of sin no mercy in our lives. We need to kill it off from our lives because God has promised that one day he's going to judge it. He's going to judge those people who make these kinds of things habitual practice in their lives. Right? And it tells us just ever so simply, this is going to be like overstating the obvious, these kinds of sins, God just doesn't like them. They displease him. And of course, no one wants to, you know, be close to something that God has said very clearly in his word that he's going to someday judge, knowing that he could judge it at any time. Of course, we want to build our lives as far away from those things as we can. But even beyond that, as a Christian, it should be enough to know that these things just displease him. They displease this God who loves me, this God that we were worshiping just before this, this great God who saved me at such an enormous expense to himself. And that's a very high motivation for us to want to mortify these things. Just this inherent desire now that I want to please the one who's been so good to me. And look what Paul does in verse 7. He gives us, I, I think, this is the motivation that really riles us up. Because while these sins, he says, they once were a part of our lives, they're no longer to have any part in our lives now as Christians. This is the way that the world lives. But we now live, right? We have the possibility and we have the power now to live on this higher level. And, and the point in a very real practical sense is this. When these kind of temptations come to us, and I can only assume, right, that some of you recognize this, and I'm not the only one that Paul's talking to here. Amen? Right? So when these kind of temptations come to us, Paul is reminding us that we have already invested quite enough of our life living in these kinds of sins. Right? And so there, this is where that sense of a righteous indignation comes up when we say, hey, Satan, hey, sin at my door, I have already committed enough days or months or years engaged in that particular behavior. And if this sin could have brought me satisfaction, then I never would have become a Christian in the first place. 
if I had truly been satisfied by this thing that Satan's dangling in front of me, but it was my dissatisfaction with what that provided, that's what drove me to the cross, drove me to become a Christian, just the utter emptiness that I know that it will bring. And just to be able to stop and to say, you know what, I know where this goes. I know exactly where this leads. I know the kind of person this sin turns me into, right? I have been there, I have done that, and I got the t-shirt, and I don't want to go back to that at all. And this can be such a helpful motivation for truly showing no mercy to these kinds of things in our lives. Because we don't need to live that way anymore. We now have a real choice to live in this new kind of Christian character, right? Separated from the ways of the world and from the deeds of the flesh and also from what those things bring about in our lives as our behavior, right? We're corrupted by these things internally and it affects how we act externally, right? You think about all that shame and that guilt and the anxiety and the uncertainty that that kind of sin produces in us. And that starts to dictate how we act rather than letting the Holy Spirit in this new nature inside of us dictate. Look what Paul writes next. He says in verse 8, he says, but now you yourselves are to put off all of these, right? These are the behaviors, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. He says, do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, whether there or where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. He says, but Christ is all and in all. So in these verses, right here, Paul paints this powerful picture of the stark difference between who we once were before we came to Christ and who we now are now that we are new creations in Christ. And Paul talks about it here, he talks about it in some of his other letters, as the old man versus the new man. Referring to this old nature that we inherited right, because we were physically descendants of Adam, and then this completely new nature that we've now received as the Holy Spirit has come and really regenerated us as we were born again through that spiritual rebirth. He said this to the Ephesians, same thing, slightly different way. He said that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to your deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. The old man versus the new man. Or, if you want to use more gender-neutral, gender-inclusive language, you could say it's the old person versus the new person. You could say it's the old self versus the new self. I don't care what you call it, but Paul's point is that we need to put off the old one and we need to put on the new one. Right, so out with the old, in with the new, we first have to put to death that old earthly nature. And then in these verses, he says, we need to put off the old man. And again, we think put on, put off. I don't understand. This sounds more like a trip to the mall than it does like my Christian walk. But Paul here, understand what he's doing. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's using this imagery that everyone in all of human history can relate to. Whether we're talking 2,000 years ago when he wrote it, or whether we're talking about our culture today, and of course this imagery that he wants to have come to our minds whenever we think of this putting off of the old man and putting on of the new man is simply the putting on and putting off of our clothing, right? It's, it's a common, it's a wonderfully simple picture to illustrate what is really a complex and a deep theological truth. And in fact, throughout the Bible, our behavior is very often pictured as a garment. In Job 29, he talks about, I put on righteousness and it clothed me and my justice was like a robe and a turban. 
And you know, every day on a physical level, we wake up in the morning and we stumble out and we get some coffee and we shuffle around and then we have some breakfast. And somewhere in the course of all of these things, we start to decide what it is we're going to wear for the day. And what it is in terms of clothing that we choose for the day, of course, is determined by what our plan is for the day. If I'm going to work or if I'm going to school or if I'm going to go hike in the hills or if I'm going to the gym. You know, when we look at our day and we look at what we're headed into and then we choose appropriate clothes physically for that environment. And so each of us have learned to dress ourselves. I noticed that all of you got dressed this morning, right? So I know that you understand this concept. And by the way, we're very thankful that you did get dressed this morning before you came to church. But the point is, we've all learned on a physical level how to dress ourselves appropriately. And so Paul's telling us, hey, look, exactly what we do every day on a physical level as we decide what clothes we're going to wear out of a kind of a concern for how we're going to present ourselves, how we're going to be perceived by others. We have a concern just for our personal appearance, a concern for that impression that we want to make. Because at some level, we recognize that what we wear is a reflection on some level of who we are. And so we give all of this at least some amount of thought. And so Paul tells us practically that we need to do the very same thing spiritually in the power of the Holy Spirit. We simply need to determine and to choose every single day, right? To begin the day, or maybe we do it repeatedly through the day, but we just need to determine what kind of a godly character do I choose to put on this morning? What am I going to choose to wear out that door as I'm going to now engage the world? What kind of a godly character do I now want to put on spiritually in order to make the kind of impression that I want to make on the people that I'm going to meet? And in no uncertain terms, Paul tells us we're to put off the old man with his practices because certainly that will not impress anybody. Amen? Right? Who we once were, what it is we once did, how it is we once lived before we became a Christian. Who it is that we were when all we had in that closet was that sin nature. The only choice we had every morning was that fallen, temptation-dominated flesh. We had one outfit that we could wear every single day, which, in case you forgot what that looked like, Paul reminds us here, it wasn't pretty, right? So he gives us these examples of the kinds of things that we were wearing. These are these things we're supposed to put off like they're worn out, filthy, let's be honest, pretty stinky clothes. Like look at verse eight again. He says, put off all of these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Paul says that we can start the day and simply say, Lord, I choose today as an act of my will in the power of the Holy Spirit, I choose today not to wear anger. Right? This word that speaks of this kind of a, it's a long smoldering, kind of a long abiding anger toward another person. It could be your spouse, it could be an estranged family member or a friend, maybe who has hurt you. It could be a neighbor, but you have this kind of a long-standing, deep-seated anger that's built up about them. And Paul says, put that off. He talks about putting off wrath. Wrath is the sudden eruption of that long-seated anger. Right? It's that kind of explosive anger that like flashes out quickly and then just as quickly it's gone. Paul says, put that off. Right? That style is so worn out. Right? That is so last year. Right? Then malice. Malice is a charming one. Right? Malice is kind of this deep desire we have that bad things would happen to someone. It's a desire, it's an evil desire for ill towards another person. Again, super attractive, that one, right? 
blasphemy, we usually think of blasphemy as being something related to God, but here the word speaks of any kind of slander of speech that's intended to harm another person or to harm their reputation. Paul says, put that off. He says, put off filthy language, which of course includes profanity, but it also includes dirty jokes, right? Double entendre kind of jokes. Anything that's coarse or, or obscene, right? And then also lying, right? So lying is out, right? Whether it's lying by exaggeration or just an out and out lie, any attempt where we're trying to deceive another person to whatever degree, right? These are all this lovely list of things that Paul says we're to put off. Now, I can see some of you are saying, Okay, this is great, but when's he going to get to a list that has something to do with me, right? And I know that none of us in this church, I know that we were never engaged in, we were never pulled down by any of these sins before we were Christians, let alone, right, that we're, you know, dealing with these things now as Christians, but I want you to know it's in the Bible for a reason. And it's in the Bible because there are other churches who are filled with these kinds of people, right? Just like this. And they need to hear this word from the Apostle Paul. Right? Of course, we all recognize, right, to, to some degree or another that we all struggle with these things. But what Paul's saying is now we have options, right? We don't need to walk around in these smelly, old, stinky clothes any longer we have been raised with Jesus. And when Jesus left the tomb, right, in resurrection power, what did he do? He took the grave clothes and he left them laying there behind. He left them laying there because he had entered into this glorious new resurrection life and he had no need for these grave clothes. And you remember also when Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, even before that, what's the very first thing he told those people who watched this all happen? Remember it said that he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. His face was wrapped in a cloth. So that's Lazarus. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So every one of us in this room this morning who has given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, can I tell you, you have been loosed and you have been let go and you can stop walking around in that dead man's suit. You have a whole new wardrobe that you can now choose from, right? Out with the old, in with the new. We put to death the earthly nature. We put off the old man. And now look what Paul says in verses 12 through 14. We're to put on the new man. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, right, holy and beloved, he says, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Now, this is a much better list, right? This is a much better outfit. This is an outfit that goes with everything. It looks good anywhere. It's the perfect look for home or for work or for school. Ladies, this is a look that transitions seamlessly from day to evening, right? These are these beautiful spiritual clothes. In other words, this is that glorious godly character that people see on the outside of us that supremely and rightly really properly represents that glorious new nature that the Holy Spirit has birthed within us. And so now we can say, right, as we start off every day and we simply determine, you know what, I'm not going to put on anger today, I'm not going to put on wrath or whatever old, awful, ugly thing you've been wearing, right? But now, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit and as an act of my will, I choose to put on, as I head out that door, I choose to put on tender mercies, compassion for people. 
I choose to put on kindness. That's the expression of that compassion. It's doing good for other people. Humility there, meekness. They both speak about that wonderful gentleness in Jesus. We say, God, I choose to put on gentleness today. I want to wear gentleness in my interactions with people. That's the character that I want them to see in the end. And in that sense, that, that sense of long-suffering, which, like it sounds, simply means that often we are suffering a long time with some person. Right? It's patience. It's a lot of long patience with people, which enables us, look at verse 13, to bear with one another. In other words, we don't get too easily offended by the actions or the imperfections of other people. And this is a big one, but what a wonderful thing to put on. To say, God, you know how people can really get on my nerves. But I know it's because I'm wound way too tight. Right? I know that I'm a perfectionist. I know that I demand it of myself. I expect it of other people. But I don't want to take that out the door with me anymore because I know that that is all a part of what I inherited from Adam and Eve and not that came from you in the spiritual birth. And so I'm going to choose today, Lord, to put on this quality of being able to bear with one another. I'm not going to expect to run into any perfect people at all, all day long. And so that when I run into those not so perfect people and all of their being under construction, right, even as a Christian, but I want to deal with that and I want to bear with them. You know, Lord, help me to forgive them, right? For anything that their sinful selves might do to me today, I want to forgive them supernaturally, and I'm going to choose to do that, to forgive them even as you have forgiven me, which, Lord, is way more forgiveness than they, than they deserve. Right? And I know that because I know that it's way more forgiveness than I ever deserved. Just imagine walking around like that during the day. That is a good-looking outfit, right? These are the clothes that we need now to just determine that we're going to put on each and every day. You know, you'll often hear people talk about wanting to get suited up every morning with the spiritual armor of God, right? Paul's list in Ephesians chapter 6, right? They want to suit themselves up as a Christian to go out and to do battle, and they want to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shields, shoes of faith and the, I'm sorry, the shoes of peace, the shoes of faith, that would be a good look, but the, the shoes of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, they want to put all of those things on before they head out the door, and I think that's a great idea. Put the Ephesians 6 list on, but put that on after you have already put on the Colossians 3 list. Put on Paul's list here in Colossians 3 first. This is the list that you need to be wearing in order to be dressed for success. Right? There's a, an old expression. It's some career advice. If you guys are in the business world, you probably heard it. It says that you need to dress for the job you want, not the job you have. And one business blog that I came across, people actually write about these things, but I like the way he explained it. He says, it means if you work in the mailroom, instead of pouting and grumbling, stand up straight when you're in the executive wing. It means start dressing and acting and speaking now as you would when you get where you want to go. That way, when that recognition or promotion comes, you'll already have the wardrobe and the ways to go with it. And there's certainly some truth to this, right? Except that now so many executives, right? They've made loungewear kind of a uniform, but you get the point. And yet here's the real point, is that we already have the job. Amen? 
We're new creations in Jesus Christ. We have this new heavenly nature. So what we need to do now is not to dress for the job that we want. We need to start to dress for the job that we already have. We need to start wearing the wardrobe that is hanging there in that gorgeous closet now. So try this out tomorrow. Try it out this afternoon. Go through this list. Put all these things on after you've taken off all of those other things. Make a list and put it on your mirror in the bathroom. Put it inside of your locker, wherever, right? You think I'm kidding? Well, do you think Paul was kidding? Right. But wait, there's more. Right. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So there it is. Right? This is the perfect belt. Right? This is the final accessory that really ties together your whole outfit. It's actually more like an overcoat right, that beautifully encompasses all of those other wonderful items. Some of your translations may actually say that over all of these virtues, put on love. It's that beautiful, selfless, agape kind of love that supernatural kind of heavenly love. It's that John 3.16 kind of God so agape the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life kind of love. This is that kind of love that comes only from God himself and from his Holy Spirit. And so here now, by Paul telling us this, what he's telling us is that all of these things that he's telling us to put on, none of these things are something that we can just kind of produce in our own lives, but these are things that come from the Holy Spirit, right? These are the fruit of the Holy Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, like sweet Chiara read to us this morning, completely unplanned, by the way. We're able to first put off one and put the other on, and we're able to do it only because it's the Holy Spirit has already energized and empowered and produced those qualities inside us. And when Paul talks about this kind of love and describes it as the bond of perfection, he's saying that this is the very glue that bonds not only us together as individuals, but it bonds all of us together as Christians. It's what Peter wrote about in 1 Peter 4. He said this, he said, and above all things, and so that's kind of one of those on the edge of your seat kind of beginnings to a sentence, right? Peter says, above all things, he says, have fervent agape for one another. He says, for agape will cover a multitude of sins, and it will. Look, I know we all have some difficult people in our lives. We have people who can really challenge us to keep wearing the right kind of clothes, right? We have people that can really challenge us to keep that old man kind of clothing in the closet where it belongs. And let's remember as we say that, before we fall off of our high horse, remember that we probably are that person to somebody else, right? But at any rate, we can sometimes find ourselves praying, you know, God, you need to change him. God, you need to change her. I don't know if I can take even another day or whatever it might be for you. And we load our entire focus of our thought life and our prayer life on them changing or on God changing them. And it's okay to pray that way. There's nothing wrong with loading some of that on God and on that other person, maybe even loading half of it. But the other half, so often the real reason why people drive us crazy the way they do is because we need to grow in love. We need to grow in agape love. And it's a shortcoming of our experience with love. It's a shortcoming of us living a life that's dominated by love. That's what really makes the situation sometimes more acute than whatever it really was that they were doing or not doing. It's all about how we are responding to them or how we're relating to them. 
And on that note, did you note that every one of the qualities that Paul mentions in this passage, they all express themselves primarily in relationship. They're all qualities of character that express themselves in how we relate to other people. There are other important Christian qualities, right? Diligence, courage, steadfastness, good stewardship, wisdom, all of those are all important. But what Paul is showing us is that by far the most significant measure of our Christian life is found simply in the way that we treat other people. It's in the quality of the relationships that we have together with them, with our love for them, right? Our agape love for them right at the top of the list. And it's interesting because remember the Gnostics, what they taught, they taught that the bond of perfection or the thing that would finally bring one to perfection, they taught that it was knowledge. Remember that was one of their buzzwords. They promised they had this secret knowledge and their teachings would lead you into it. It was a kind of an intellectual knowledge and that's what they claimed was the supreme mark of spirituality. And here Paul says, no, that simply isn't true. That the real distinction, the real mark of spiritual maturity goes right here to this thing called love. That kind of love that we see, that agape love that we see in Jesus Christ. And Paul says there is a knowledge involved, but it's a knowledge, it's a whole different kind of knowledge. Look back quickly with me. Look at the end of verse 10. Paul says that this new man, right, this new spiritual man, he says that it will be renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now, I don't know about you, but that's one of those passages for me that I could read a thousand times and still just marvel at it, that we will be renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created us, according to the image of Jesus. And what Paul is saying here in the context, right, in the middle of this discussion about our wardrobe, is that as we live like this, as we live putting off of these things and putting on these things, but of course mainly in the putting on, but as we live like this, we are becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus himself who created us and then recreated us and then who provided us with this spiritual rebirth. 2 Corinthians 3, one of my favorite verses, says that we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, little by little, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So put on the new man, says Paul. Right? Put on mercy, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness and long-suffering and love. In short, what Paul is saying is what? Put on Christ. That's what we're to put on. So it's not just what would Jesus do, right? It's more like what would Jesus wear, right? What did Jesus wear as he did all that he did? And these Gnostic teachers, they were always emphasizing this kind of intellectual knowledge as the pathway to real spiritual depth and maturity. But Paul says that that is found in the knowledge of Jesus. And he says it no matter who you were, who you are, whatever it is. Look at the end of verse 11. Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. Christ is all and in all. So he says, regardless of your nationality or your religion or your culture or your social or economic status, it's all about Jesus. Jesus dwelling in us and changing us as we grow in our intimacy and our understanding and our knowledge of him. And I don't have time for this, but I don't care because I'm going to say it anyway. The word that's used for knowledge there, it's a super special one, right? You've, did I go over this? It's epignoso or epignosis. And it's different than just gnosis, which is like a fact-filled knowledge. But epignosis means a kind of knowledge that can only come from our experience, right? So we know the sun is hot, 
right? We can gnosis that in our minds from a textbook, right? But we experience, right? We epignosis that fact when we simply step outside after church today and we actually feel the heat of the sun on our skin. And Paul says that's the kind of knowledge we need to grow in our epignosis of Jesus. We need to grow as we experience him day by day by day. As we simply experience this putting off and this putting on that Paul talks about here. And as we do that, empowered by the Spirit through our relationship with Jesus, and we get to practice it every day, don't we? But then as we simply start to practice it, and we start to experience some little victory in it, we start to experience even just a little bit of victory, and that way we start to grow then in our intimacy, we're growing in that experiential knowledge of God, and our sanctification doesn't come any other way. And to try to find spiritual depth independent of that, just going deeper and deeper in our experience with Jesus, it is always going to be a dead end. Right? Our growth is always found as we increase in our experiential knowledge of that relationship that we have with him. So here we have in this passage, right, we have the Apostle Paul's super practical instruction on really how it is that we can live this Christian life that we want to be living, right? Putting to death the deeds of the flesh, putting off those old behaviors, putting on those new behaviors. And yes, it involves a decisive act of our will, right? We need to want to make these changes, and then we simply need to make, did I say changes? I meant choices, right? We simply need to make these choices and then make them and then trust that the Holy Spirit is going to add his wonderful power to this equation and enable us to carry them out. And I know that it can be hard work and hard work to even know where to get started. But here's one other sort of stupid saying as we close that I think kind of helps in this picture. And this one definitely belongs right, kind of in the hallowed halls of old cliches at this point. But it's that expression, I'm sure you've heard it, that you just need to fake it till you make it, right? This idea, again, so often in a business context, that by somehow imitating confidence and competence and just having an optimistic mindset, that you will then start to realize those qualities in your own life. It's really kind of a self-improvement kind of a mindset that actually has no place at all in our Christian experience, except that it kind of does. And I think that it kind of does in the sense that sometimes we need to just put on these new spiritual clothes, even when we don't feel like it, but we need to just put them on anyway, and then just start to walk around in them, right? Put off the old man, put on the new man, and then just walk around in your new wardrobe. Start to just walk around in it by faith. You say, I don't know how this kindness feels, I don't know how this gentleness feels, but I'm going to walk around in it by faith. And you're going to start to see that you really like the way these new clothes fit. They're way more comfortable than those old sort of ugly clothes that we've been wearing for so long. They're made of better materials, and they look much better on you too, and everyone around you will tell you that. Jesus just looks good on you. Amen? And just think back this morning, maybe as the worship team starts to come up, quietly as they do. They're so quiet as they come up. They're like mice. But I just want us to think back for a moment, even just as we prepare to take communion today, and just think back for a moment to that day when you weren't a Christian. And just think of how wonderful it is now just to be able to get up and to go to that new spiritual closet every single day. And when we go there, we see the old man Right? That person that we once were, he is still hanging there in the closet. And we can still choose to put him on if we want to. And there was a time when we went to that closet, remember, and that's all that was there. 
right? There was no other option that we could choose. But now we go to the closet and we see him hanging there. But next to him, we see the new man hanging right next to him. We see that new person that God has created inside of us. And now we have this wonderful freedom and this priceless privilege of being able now to make that choice to put that man on today. And how horrible, remember, that it was to go to that closet every morning and we felt like there was no other option to put on this person in this life that I was living in, this place that I was headed. That was an awful closet to wake up to every day. But now, right now having become a Christian, now to have these beautiful options that are in front of us and that choice that has been provided to us, these beautiful heavenly garments that always look great on us, right? And that's the way, isn't it, that we dress for success. And so now this morning as we go and as we celebrate communion, as we do on the first Sunday of every month, we can simply celebrate it remembering that, right? Through his death on the cross, right? His broken body and through his shed blood, this is part of what Jesus has provided to us. We've been redeemed from our sin. We've been reconciled back to God. And we've been provided with this new nature, right? And this new wardrobe, if you will, if that picture is working for you. And what a great life that it is now that we lead. Amen.